Now, after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our Father, we pray that you would give us an open mind this morning to the words of your Son. We pray that you would use this as an opportunity to focus our church even more upon what is of supreme importance, uh, what the message is that we are to communicate and to believe each individually. So we pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning. Amen. There's perhaps nothing more basic to Christianity than these words. Believe in the gospel. I would say even a small child going to Awana or a Sunday school program for a couple months would be able to recognize these words. They'd be familiar uh, to us no matter how new we are to the faith. Uh, it's, very, it's a very common theme in the church. But even while they are perhaps the most familiar of all words in the church, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the power of the words is felt. It's like a, a country uh, that was birthed, like our own country, birthed in the midst of a, a revolution, a belief in certain ideals founded upon certain beliefs uh, that all men are created equal, etc., and there's been many pieces of artwork that has been made to memorialize those ideals. So we can go to a museum and we can see all these beautiful paintings about our history, about uh, the core, so to speak, of our, of our nation. And every institution would have a similar story. Uh, every institution, including the church, is founded upon certain ideas that drive it forward, that cause the birth of the thing in the first place. But if we're not careful, we can become just like our culture where we have beautiful paintings in the museum and we admire them while at the same time completely undermining the ideals behind those pieces of art. The words belief, faith, gospel uh, can be on the walls of our homes can be on the walls of our churches, can be in our confessions of faith, and yet we can drift so far away from those words so that we just kind of smile and nod and they're, they're almost a relic of the past. We don't actually experience the power of those words anymore. And the church, it, it, the job of the church is to bring you to experience the power of the gospel in a fresh way, continually. It's not just for that moment you made a decision for Christ. It's what it, what's created the church in the first place. It's the message that we're to bring into the world, into the community. Uh, and so we're ending our three-part series in the preaching of Jesus today. If you remember, we began that series with the theme, The Kingdom of God. And we asked the question, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of God is at hand? And we saw that Jesus was preaching that we are living on the brink of a new age 
which he called the kingdom of God. And that's what gave his message such urgency. That's what makes the gospel so urgent, is that there's a great transition that will occur at any moment that we need to be ready for. Part one. Part two of Jesus' preaching was repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand, so therefore, number one, repent. And we asked the question, what does it mean to repent? And we saw that the Bible teaches that true repentance is the turning of the whole man from sin to God. It's everything about the person turning away from sin to God. And so we come to part three this morning and we look at the words believe in the gospel and we have to ask the question, just as every generation of Christians has to, has to ask, what did Jesus mean? What exactly did he mean when he said believe in the gospel? What does that mean? And I will argue this morning that when the Lord Jesus Christ said believe in the gospel, he was commanding the world to embrace him him, okay, as a perfect savior from sin, death, and hell. When he said believe in the gospel, he was offering himself to the world as a perfect and all-sufficient savior. And so we'll just take this in two parts today, and we'll first ask the question, well, what is the gospel? Uh, we'll ask, also ask the question, what, what does it mean to believe in the gospel? But before you can believe something, you have to know what it is. What does that mean? What is the gospel? Well, if we look at the, the text, we see in verse 14 that the gospel is called the gospel of God. And that's the first thing we learn about the gospel from Mark, is that whatever this message is, it's a message that comes to us from God, from God directly, God himself. And Mark in the very first verse of Mark, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so the gospel is from God, and the Son of God is the supreme preacher of this message. So when God sent his Son into the world to accomplish a mission, he gave him a message. He gave him one thing to do, to preach one single message. And God the Son in human flesh chose to spend the three years of his public ministry basically doing one thing, preaching one message over and over to the crowds in Israel and even regions around Israel. He spent all his strength, he exhausted himself, he pushed himself to the point of exhaustion in preaching this one message. And we learn from that that the gospel is of supreme importance. So God the Son, God in human flesh, he had one life to live. He was, he was the man with the clearest priorities of anyone that's ever lived. We all struggle with prioritizing, don't we? Well, he ruthlessly prioritized his life, and he chose to spend his one life preaching this message, the message from God. And that tells us that the gospel demands immediate attention from every man, woman, and child in the world. And we learn that through the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was preaching. It, it wasn't a casual business that he was involved in. It was an urgent message that he was preaching. And when he, 
was about to ascend back to the Father, he gave the church the instructions, the Great Commission, that we'll look at in a few weeks together in our, in our membership class. But he gave the church these instructions. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. Go, therefore, and take this message to the nations. And it's interesting that he prefaced his instructions with the statement, all authority has been given to me. So his message that he preached, because it's from God, and he is God the Son, it it has supreme authority over anyone that will ever hear it. Uh, We are often too timid. I mean, we all are at different points, right? We're all too timid with our neighbors, with people we want to share the gospel with rather than proclaim the gospel. We want to use words like share because we, we don't feel like we have the right to preach to anyone. Uh, well, that's true. We don't have the right to preach to anyone, but we do have a delegated right and a delegated authority to call anyone to believe in the gospel and believe in Christ. And he he said that in the Great Commission to give us courage. And even it's called the gospel of God to emphasize its importance and authority. Uh, We have a message of supreme urgency, importance, and authority. And since Christ is ascended into heaven, who's the preacher now? Well, you could say, well, you are. Okay, I am the one actually preaching here. But the church is. As a whole, the church is Christ's preacher. And that's our our great business now, to preach the same message that he preached. So it's a message from God that's obvious here, but it's also a message to sinners. It's a message to sinners. And I think this will help us understand those of us that may be coming out of a, uh, a cheap grace theology, or maybe you're just a little tired of how the gospel is presented by the church in a lot of places in our culture where it's, it's more of an offer of a better life. Like that is the offer of the gospel. Your life is pretty good, but it will be better with Jesus. And most of us, we, as we've studied the Bible, we've seen, man, that is, that is just not quite the whole story. That is not the whole story, sure. Uh, Jesus came so that we would have an abundant life. He came to feed his sheep, to save his sheep, to be a shepherd to his sheep. But the gospel is fundamentally a message to sinners. So if there's no mention of sin, if the context of sin is lost, if the gospel is separated from the ideas of sin, it loses its power. There's no power. It's just an offer. It's just one of many philosophies that offers a slightly better life. But we see in Mark chapter 1 that the gospel is addressed to sinners. John the Baptist, we met him a few weeks ago, and who was he preaching to? Who, were, who was his audience? It was, okay, it was not the religious elites. It was not the self-righteous. It was the tax collectors and prostitutes, by and large. The, the dregs of society that were the ones responding to his message and who he was addressing it to. And Jesus, as he comes on the scene now in Mark's account, we see that he's continuing the ministry of John, that there's a continuity between John the Baptist and his message for sinners and Christ in his own message. And he spoke of repentance as well. 
And so we, we see, obviously, the gospel is a message not only from God, but it's to sinners. And without that context, it doesn't make any sense. In other words, the, before the gospel can really have power in a soul, it first has to confront, doesn't it? Uh, it's like a, a patient who's fatally ill, but doesn't think he is. The doctor may have a cure for the patient, but before he can help the patient, he has to, what, first convince him that he has a need. Do you know that you're fatally ill? Do you know that you're, you're terribly sick? Do you know that 99% of people die from this disease unless they receive this treatment, which I have in my hand? So there must be something like that happening before the gospel can really be presented. It's not just good news to a smug, self-righteous person. It's boring news. <laughs> if you're self-righteous, it's boring. Well, that's great. You're religious. I'm not religious. I'm fine. The gospel, while it does bring condemnation, it's not a message of pure and angry condemnation. So there is a place for a preacher and for any Christian to talk about sin and to confront someone about their sin out of love for them. But it's not an angry message. It's not a message of hate. And that's what you'll hear in the world. You'll hear, oh, you're, that's so hateful that you talk about sin so much and that you condemn certain things. I once heard of a, a man who had a, had a daughter that went astray. She ran away from home and ended up on the streets of San Francisco doing who knows what. The man, heartbroken, went went to go look for her day after day, week after week, month after month, went searching through the streets. And I don't know actually what eventually became of her, but I would imagine if he, if he did happen upon her, what would he say? He wouldn't say, oh, you are the worst scum of the earth. You're a guilty sinner. You're a criminal. Well, he may, he may say something like that, but it's not out of hatred, is it? No, it's, it's out of a desperation to get his little girl to see her condition. To say, no, don't you understand what you're doing? Uh, don't you understand the filth you're living in? Look, I, I'm happy to welcome you back into my home. I'll forgive everything. I'll forgive all the money you stole. Won't you please come back? So when we say that the, mess, the gospel is a message from God to sinners, it's not a hateful, angry message. It's that kind of it's that kind of thing. It's the father pleading with his wayward daughter to come back to him. So it's a message to sinners, and it has that kind of tone. But it's also a message about Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel? Uh, from God to sinners, but the thing itself, the content itself is Jesus Christ. And we see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll keep going back to that verse because it, it just begins the whole narrative. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, the gospel, according to Mark, is Jesus. Jesus is himself the gospel. And that helps us understand what Jesus was saying in verse 15. When he said, believe in the gospel, he was, he was really offering himself. He was the embodiment of the gospel, and he was calling people to come to him. 
In other words, everything that we desperately need as, sin- as sinners is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So we need forgiveness from sin. We need righteousness before God. Uh, our need is perfectly suited to what Christ provides. That's what we learn here. There's a lot we can say about the life of Christ and his death and resurrection, but, and, and we will get through that as we go through Mark together because it really is the whole gospel, is, is the whole message of Christ and his life. But three things in particular it's, it's common to mention. We need to know about his life, that Jesus lived a, a sinless life to be the savior from sin. He needs to himself be a sinless substitute. He needs to be a sinless man in order to save anyone for sin, from sin. Uh, without any victory over sin himself as a man, he's powerless, obviously, to help us in our sin. And he said to the crowds, the only man that could ever say this, which one of you convicts me of sin? There is no one that could ever say that except for the Lord Jesus Christ. He challenged people publicly. If I've sinned, show me what sin. Show me even the slightest, smallest sin that I've committed. And of course, he never did, and no one could bring an accusation against him. So in our desperation, in our great need of salvation from sin, we need a Savior from sin, so we need a spotless Savior, uh, but we also need atonement. So our, our, our sin uh, demands an infinite punishment uh, f- for what we, have, what we have done. And sometimes people don't understand this. Um, we need a substitute. We need a ransom of infinite value because our sin against God is eternal. Okay, we have not just sinned against another fallen person. We have not just sinned against another creature. We've sinned against the holy God, and because God is holy, he has an infinite hatred for sin, and he has an infinite love for what is good, and because of that, because God is not like us, because God is good in the supreme sense, it demands an eternal and infinite punishment. This is why no one can take your place except a divine but also human savior. That's why Jesus must be God in order to be a sufficient savior for sin. And so on the cross, as Jesus hung there dying, the Bible tells us that what was happening was, was more than just physical suffering. Uh, we, can, we can almost zero in on that and glamorize, as some movies do, his physical suffering and the scourging and the flogging and the, and the nails and the rest. But that was not the worst of what happened on the cross. What was happening on the cross was that billions of years of suffering that you deserve were being distilled and then poured out on God the Son in those three hours. An innocent man. But he not only died, he also rose from the dead. And his resurrection proved once and for all that he was who he said he was that he was God the Son, that he was Christ, the Messiah, that he was the Lord. His resurrection also proved that all his words were true. 
Everything he taught, whether it was about morality or the nature of God or the kingdom of God, down to the smallest detail, was all true. Uh, And he claimed that for himself, and God vindicated him through the resurrection. But finally, the resurrection proved that his sacrifice was sufficient. So in order to, to believe in Christ, you need to be convinced that he is able to save. And so we know that he is able to save because he rose from the dead, that he actually extinguished the wrath of God on the cross. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He's not being crucified over and over again every week in the Mass. He is not suffering continually in a spiritual sense. There is no such thing as purgatory that you need to go to to burn off your remaining sin and to suffer for your own sin. Why? Because nothing may ever be added to the sacrifice of Christ. It was God the Son who died. It was the sacrifice of infinite value for sin. And because of that, there is no place for adding even the slightest merit to his work. There's, there's no prayer we need to pray. There's no ritual we need to do. We're going to talk about membership. There's, church membership won't earn you anything from God. Baptism, some of you need to be baptized. Baptism won't earn you anything from God. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we receive a righteous standing before God. And so we see, first of all, that the gospel is a message from God to sinners about salvation through Jesus Christ. Pretty basic. But that's, that's what we mean when we say those things. There's depth to those things. Th- these words that we repeat and we, we just recognize, we're so familiar with, there's real, there's infinite depth to those words. So we know what the gospel is, hopefully, but now we must ask the question, okay, what is it, what exactly does it mean to believe in the gospel? And notice here, just a small detail, it says believe in. As you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that, that it has the word believe in, not just believe. And so that alerts us to, to this need. It's not just to nod your head about certain facts, not just to believe certain facts. Oh yeah, I know Jesus, I know God exists, and I know Jesus is, is the Messiah, and I, I agree. No, the Bible means more by belief than just we nod our heads about certain facts. Uh, and I will argue that to believe in the gospel is to embrace to actually embrace, by faith, Christ alone as a perfect Savior from sin and its consequences. Let let me repeat that. Very important. To, To actually believe in the gospel is not just to agree with facts, but it's to actually embrace, by faith, Christ alone as a perfect Savior. In order to do that, you have to do a few things. A few things are contained in that. First, you must receive the gospel as truth. Uh, if, you have skept- if you're a skeptic, if you have a lot of questions about whether these things are true, you obviously do not, you can't tr- entrust yourself to something that you're not sure is even a reality. 
if you are caught up in, you know, the historical Jesus and maybe you went to a liberal university and they said, well, yeah, there's, you know, these things, it was made up. These are, these are myths. It's similar to Greek legends and, and all the rest. And if you bought into that, you obviously are not going to entrust your soul to a myth, are you? So the first requirement of saving faith is that you receive the gospel as, as truth. In other words, you need to be convinced that the Bible is the word of God. It's not, not just Jesus, not just a red letter, not just being a red letter Christian and just liking some stories about Jesus. The whole book, you have to hold this in your hands and believe this is God's word. When I read this, I'm hearing the creator speaking to me. That's really what divides us from, from every cult, from every false religion, from modern human philosophy, is that the foundation of our beliefs is we, we build everything on this foundation. Some people complain about that, and they think, well, show me proof, show me a sign, I've never seen a miracle, etc. Well, let me present this picture to you. If you imagine that you have a job <laughs> and a boss, and your boss calls you in and says, there's a problem. I want you to address this problem. Would you demand a bunch of evidence from him? Would you say, okay, I'll, I'll do that, but prove it to me. I, I want to see all the reports. I want to see the video. I want to see, see all these proofs. And, and imagine he showed it to you. And then it's, you say, well, that's not enough. And you start peppering with him with questions. Well, what if, what if you're trying to trick me? What if this does, isn't actually true? What if you are just sending me on a wild goose chase? How would, how would your boss respond to that kind of attitude? You're out of here, right? You're fired, um, maybe. It, it's, that, it's a similar way with the creator. So we are not, when we hear God speaking to us, he's not an equal. We are hearing the creator speaking to us. We are out of line. If we say, well, yeah, I kind of I like this and I'll, I'll buy into it as, as long as I see an angel appear to me or as long as certain things happen to me in life. Uh, that's called testing God. That's called inverting the, the order that exists between you and God. We have a mo- belief is not an option. It's not an intellectual puzzle to solve. It's a moral obligation. As a creature, you are obligated morally to believe what you're reading in the Bible. And the Bible clearly tells us about the gospel. And so we must receive the gospel as truth before we can entrust ourselves to it. And there's more that we could say about that uh, as well. But we can move on. You must also be convinced about what the gospel says about you. So that, that follows from what we just said. If you're convinced the gospel is true, that means that you accept what the gospel says about your condition. And so what does the gospel say about your condition? Well, if you, if you just grab a random person off the street or a friend or family member, may not be a Christian, and ask them, friend, neighbor, have you lived a perfect life? What do you think? On a scale of one to ten, how good or bad are you? They'd say, well, probably a seven and a half is what most people would say. Yeah, you know, when pressed, oh, have you ever did something you regret? Well, yeah, I suppose. 
Have you ever told a lie? Well, I told a couple lies, I guess, when I was five. Um, kind of minimize. We all do that. We minimize. But if you ask the same person, do you deserve, do you think that you deserve to be thrown into the burning lake of hell? They would probably look at you like you were insane. And you, you probably have had people look at you like that if you've ever actually talked to them about hell and, and judgment and etc. And what does that mean? Well, most people are willing to admit I am imperfect. But few people are willing to really acknowledge that, that, that what Christ endured on the cross, that's what I actually deserve. And we, if we're not careful, we can, be, we can have the same attitude in the church where you think, you know, I can't remember a time when I wasn't saved. I was probably saved when I was one, before I could talk. You know, Jesus was the first word I learned in church, in the nursery. I don't remember ever committing a heinous sin. And we can, we can be the same way. Uh, but when we do that, when we minimize our own sin, we evacuate all the power from the gospel. Because again, the gospel makes no sense, has no glory, has no worth, doesn't shine to someone that is not utterly convinced that they're depraved, that they have nothing to offer God, that they stand guilty and condemned before God. And God is not like us. So the people that would rate themselves 7.5 on the good scale, they are judging themselves by their own standard. They are creating their own standard of righteousness. The Bible says that the gospel, uh, that the law of God, rather, is like a window. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law, the whole thing, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so when I say it's like a window, the law is like a window. A single bullet penetrating that window ruins the whole thing. In the same way, the law does not have a 7.5 that doesn't exist. It's either 0 or 10. It's either you are righteous or unrighteous, innocent or guilty. So a single sin places you under the wrath and judgment of God. God is holy, and we cannot repay him for anything, once the window is shattered, we need a whole new, we need a whole new window. Galatians 3 verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Okay, so if we are trying to earn our standing before God through our good works, rituals, baptism, anything, even our prayer life, the Bible says that we are under God's curse, that it is literally impossible to achieve righteousness before God by our good works. And Romans 3 verse 20 says the same thing. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God did not give us the law to create a system that we can use to merit righteousness before him. He gave us the law to reveal sin. So the law has a place. We even read about husbands and wives in Ephesians this morning. That's law. You are, it's a Christian law to submit to your husband and to love your wife sacrificially. But while the law is good, all the law can do to a sinner is to reveal his sin. And that's 
that's all it can do. If you don't know Christ, that's all the law can do for you is to show you how bad you are. So we must accept what the gospel says about us. But on the other hand, we must also accept what it says about Christ. Uh, Now we're ready to hear the gospel. And some of you may be frustrated as you've tried to evangelize uh, friends or family and you've invited them to church or or talked about what you've been learning. You may be frustrated. And I would just propose that it could be that that, yeah, the person is not really ready to hear, right? They are, they are hearing the gospel, when they hear the gospel presented and they hear us talk about Jesus, if they're not convinced that they're that person, that they are under the curse of God, that they are guilty before God, it doesn't mean a whole lot, right? If, you, if someone said, I'll pay your debt and you have zero debt, it's like, so what? I don't have any debt, so that's nice you're willing to pay it if, if I had it. But what the person that's a million dollars in debt with all sorts of creditors running after him, garnishing his wages, starving to that person, that's welcome news to that person, isn't it? So the gospel only makes sense to this kind of person. But the gospel, and to elaborate, the gospel makes sense to a person with a conscience that's racked with guilt, to a person filled with regret and shame for how they've lived, to a person convinced of his danger and his helplessness. So to this kind of person, Jesus can now appear with his arms open, right? With his arms open wide saying, here I am, right? Here I am. All that you desperately need, I'm freely offering to you. I'm freely offering you forgiveness for sin, salvation from judgment. I'm willing to provide without any cost, for every need that you have. And that is what we need to be convinced of before we can believe. And so we can be convinced of these things. We can know the facts and believe them. We can even be convinced they are true, but it's still not the whole picture of faith, of believing in the gospel. We have to actually place our soul into the hands of Christ. And this is the final point. When Jesus was saying, believe in the gospel, he was presenting himself to his hearers as their savior, as their need. And if this is true, then faith is by definition not a heroic act, right? It's not an accomplishment. It's not that you need to have this big, huge faith before you can become a Christian. Uh, Faith does not require extraordinary wisdom or intelligence. The gospel is presented to even the most humble person, with the most humble education. The, God, the f- faith is not a virtue that earns anything from God. Uh, faith is not even discovering that God has chosen you. So some of you have had questions about election uh, and, God, and predestination and those sorts of things. Faith, when we say faith, faith isn't you trying to discover that you're elect, that you're saved. Faith is responding to the free offer right? Faith faith is running helpless to Christ and accepting his offer. And faith is not even the same thing as assurance of salvation. So before you can be saved, we're not saying you need to be totally sure 100% you're going to heaven before you can become a Christian. No, faith is just the desperate sinner reaching out his empty hand to Christ and just receiving the free gift. That's what faith is. That's what we mean when we say believe. It's an offer to anyone. 
Faith abandons all hope in itself. Do you understand that? So if you're thinking, well, I don't quite have enough faith to become a Christian, or, or to, I don't quite know if God really loves me. Um, when we talk about saving faith, we're talking about you totally abandoning any hope in yourself. There's, not, there's nothing good in you. Salvation, no part of your salvation will come from you. We're, telling, we're saying that faith, to have saving faith, means to run to Jesus Christ for a perfect and free salvation. It's like this. A mother of a young child... The child has a horrible accident, and the mother knows unless this child receives immediate medical treatment, the child may not survive. So the mother knows, I'm not trained. I don't have the equipment. I don't have the skill to to stop the bleeding or to address the broken bone or whatever the issue is. So what does the mother do? She knows she's totally helpless. All she can do is take that child in her arms and drive as fast as she can to the nearest hospital. That's what faith is. That's what believing in the gospel is. It's running to someone that actually can solve the problem. And so I want to ask you this. Have I been describing you? Right? I know that many of you know the facts, that I've used many familiar words to you. Faith, gospel, Jesus, resurrection, all of these words. But, but is this a living reality? in your life, do you see yourself like that as a sinner? Not, a, not as a, a seven or eight out of ten, but, but a zero. Is that you? Do you see Christ as a perfect Savior? In the Bible, we see that God's people thought of faith as placing their spirit into the hands of Christ. You remember in, in Acts, in some of the first chapters in Acts, the first martyr, Stephen, as he was being stoned, what were his final words? It, it was this. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that's Acts chapter 7. One day, you'll cross the river, right, that we all have to cross. One day, you'll be at that, at that moment where you'll have to cross the river of death, and you will have to have something to hope in. And so the question is, what will you be telling yourself? Uh, What will you tell yourself in those final moments as you're about to leave all your possessions behind, your family behind, your career behind, and you're about to launch out into eternity, into whose hands will you commit your spirit? So that's what we are talking about here. And I pray that this has been helpful for you and clarifying for you. Our Lord, we pray that this would be a living reality in each one of us. We pray that we may never become a church that drifts from the power of Christianity and the power of the gospel, that becomes so consumed with secondary matters, with uh, political causes, even with fighting certain false doctrines and heresies in our generation. Uh, we pray that we would be, first of all, committed to the true gospel, the gospel of your Son. We praise you that we have such a perfect and all-sufficient Savior for our sin. We confess that we are completely unworthy to go to heaven, to be your friends, to enjoy your presence, 
for eternity. We even confess that if you were to judge us based on this last week, we would still be worthy of eternal punishment. But we thank you that even as Christians, we can come repeatedly to the fountain of forgiveness because of what Christ did for us. We pray that you would give us perseverance and strength as we serve you in this life. And we pray for those here who may not know Christ, that today would be a day when they seek the Lord and that when they discover your grace through the gospel. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.